0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. And you're listening to the song Swaying Trees by Takanobu, performed by a pair of classically trained musicians based in Atlanta. Might sound vaguely familiar since Takanobu is frequently used on NPR shows and the Invisibilia podcast. 2019 is shaping up to be a big year for composer Nick Takanobu Ogawa and Catherine Cook, who performed together as Takanobu, with an album coming out on May 24th and an upcoming tour with Kishibashi. But before all of that, they're joining me in the studio. Welcome to both.
2: Thanks. Hi, Thanks for morning. having us.
1: So, Nick, I'm going to start with you. Takenobu means Iron Will in Japanese. Yep. It's also your middle name. So why use this as your uh, nom de musique?
2: Well, uh, it seemed like a better option than the Nikogawa band, which <laughs> I thought would be pretty lame to use. <laughs> um, and it's convenient as uh, you know, an all-encompassing band and solo name. So I use it when I play with other people in the past, now it's me and Catherine, uh, but I've also used it when it was just me solo.
1: And Iron Will, that's forceful, that's an <laughs> evocative name.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean that's kind of a loose translation of the kanji, which are like self-belief kind of, um, but the name comes from an amalgamation of the kanji in my dad and grandfather's names.
1: Well, you started writing and performing as Takanobu. This was back in 2007. recorded your first album, Introduction, Mm -hmm. completely on your own, but did get some help to fund its release from a singer-songwriter competition in New York. What happened there?
2: Yeah, uh, so it was a national competition called the Williamsburg Live Singer-Songwriter Competition, and I think I applied at a minute to midnight on the... Deadline of just like a true artist, (laughs) yeah. Um, But it was several rounds of live performance. I think there was um, like several thousand entries, and then the final night was nine finalists and. I won and got some prize money and uh, used that to fund my album.
1: Yeah, and there was another competitor there that year, a woman named Lizzie Grant,
2: <laughs> yep. who became... Uh, Lana Del Rey. Lana
1: Del Rey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did you two meet during the competition?
2: Uh, yeah, she uh, reached out to me over MySpace, actually. Uh, and Those I... were the days. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of dates things a bit. But we uh, I recorded on some of her early stuff back then. Um, and then she went on to become... Super famous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you won the competition. Yeah, I won the competition, so,
2: you know, it's coming.
1: Uh, Catherine, how about for you? You were formerly trained in an Mm -hmm. academic sense, Mm -hmm. undergrad and master's in violin performance. Where were you around this time,
3: 2007? In 2007, I was still in high school. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, playing violin and... um, How did you guys start playing together? When I uh, moved to East Atlanta... um, we started working for the same dog walking company, actually. <laughs> um, and then um, somebody there introduced us as two musicians, and it just ha- so happened that Nick was looking for a violinist to play with um, in his band. So this is all
1: working, a yeah, large. exactly. Coming together just perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and Nick, you submitted that album to a little music company called Pandora, yep. but not much happened. So you got a job then at a software company, right?
2: Uh, yeah, down here um, it was. I was a, a marketing person in, like, a business phone company. It was pretty <laughs> pretty dry stuff.
1: But so that was in 2008 when you moved to 2008,
2: Yep, yeah, moved down here. And um, at my mom's suggestion, I had submitted my album to Pandora, and nothing happened for a while. But then after three years or so, I started to notice an uptick in my iTunes downloads, mm-hmm. and pretty soon it was a car payment, and then it was a rent payment and i said goodbye to the corporate world
1: okay so (laughs) incrementally Mm -hmm. so before that had you thought like that's it i gave it a shot kind of
2: i mean i always wanted to keep playing music but you know it didn't seem realistic um to make my living at it especially living in new york um previous to atlanta it was very cutthroat and felt like you had to be you know at a level I couldn't attain um, to to really be a, a professional musician there. So
1: especially if you have to have a day job.
2: Yeah, have a day job, do music, and you know stay up until <laughs> two in the morning to play you know crappy gigs on the Lower East Side. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was it was uh, a nice move to Atlanta. I love I love the city, um, but it was really nice to be able to go full time with music.
1: So meanwhile, Catherine, Mm -hmm. you're on track to be performing in symphonies. You're a freelancer, and you actually do perform with everyone from the Atlanta Opera to Michael Buble, Mm -hmm. I understand. (laughs) So was that your career trajectory or or, or goal when you started?
3: Uh, Yeah, originally um, in music school, I mean, you're you're kind of trained for that, just to take auditions and, um, you know, try and be in a symphony full time. Um, But I don't know it never quite fit my personality to commit to that fully Um, so as soon as I was out of music school it seemed like I was always playing in a band or you know with you know playing different types of music other than just classical Um, so yeah it's just a little bit of everything now
1: which I love. Well, let's hear a little bit more of the music that, Nick, you made when you started making money. You quit your job and wrote and recorded your second album in 2011. Here's the song Exposition from the album of the same name. So in this case, is this all you, you know, yep. layering yourself on top of yourself?
2: Exactly, multi layer A one-man show. Recording, yeah, one-man band kind of thing, um, which in live performance we accomplish with loop pedals, recording ourselves as we play that, you know, continues to loop and we can layer stuff over, over top.
1: Well, this sort of moves and progresses through a little bit of an emotional journey. I mean, what was going on for you mood-wise
4: here?
2: Well, it was sort of my freedom uh, anthem, uh, being able to, you know, escape the, the, uh, the workaday life that I was not really into myself and uh, be able to just do music full-time, which is what I had always had always wanted to do.
1: This is you breaking mm. off the old ball and chain. <laughs> yeah. yeah <no> <laughs> that is Nick Ogawa, and Catherine Cook is also with us. They make up the Atlanta-based classical pop, folk, whatever group, mm-hmm. Takanobu, <laughs> and joining me in the studio. That is something. I went to the Big Ears Festival a couple months ago, and uh, they were talking about, like, reporters were talking about how they report on this music, and they always feel like, You know, if something doesn't fit into a certain genre, they have to start with, well, it's not for everybody. (laughs) Or, you know, that there's a way that they have to kind of explain it. Do you you find yourself explaining what you do?
2: Yeah. I mean, I find myself trying to avoid explaining it. I've fallen back on just referring to it as cinematic folk, which seems to be a convenient catch-all because the, you know, the instrumentation is not straight-up folk guitar, you know. Mm -hmm classic instruments for folk but it's not quite folk you know it's not quite you know movie soundtrack stuff either we're singing and yeah it seems know.
3: like no matter what label you apply to it people will go to the yeah stream so, of that So yeah. it's not quite folk
1: either
2: yeah and but,
1: but the you are you have done some stuff for video creators right
2: yeah yeah that's actually kind of where things have taken me um started with you know more like web video type of things but now getting into composing for indie feature films um, which has been great. I did a documentary uh, a couple years ago, and a feature last year, and working on a feature now. So it's it's really fun stuff. To
1: yeah. Do. So what is that process like? You're watching something, and you're trying to create a mood.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're trying to you know capture the emo- the the unspoken emotional backstory to the to the actors' mm-hmm. actions and the director's intentions. Um, And, you know, documentary, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit easier, I would say. But with feature film stuff, it's actually kind of more fun to do.
1: But you talked about you know that your downloads started paying eventually for what you the life the car payment right yeah the, the, the car stuff payment, you went yeah. to do. and this is a story that really could only happen in the digital age it's true you have fans but how about you know downloads do this that equal bookings if you say hey I'm TakanoBu I would love to play at your club right take a chance on me
2: uh, it's actually that's the main kind of struggle kind of because the you know the algorithms are so good at personalizing people's tastes that the listeners can find the music but Mm -hmm. it's not very transparent to the booking agents so we really haven't done that much touring um this summer is going to be more our 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 bigger foray into touring um which has been you know Exciting to try to plan, but also a struggle to, to get the gigs because because right. people don't know who we are. <laughs>
3: the, the venues we have been to, even though that they're small, it seems like they're totally filled to capacity. And um,
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the fifty person, you know.
3: Well, place, like, I know, like, but ev- everybody there is going up to Nick and just saying, "Oh, I've been listening to your music for years. I've been waiting to see you live." It's pretty cool. It
2: does feel good. But yeah, yeah and people, I I've, I find a lot of people say that they listened to the music when they were studying for something. It seems like a,
1: <laughs> like mm.
2: a concentration yeah. music type of thing. It's
1: a little, just... med- it's, you know, somewhat repetitive, but there's enough variety that you don't feel like you're listening to one yeah, of those like an white noise to things. It? Yeah,
2: you know, yeah.
1: The waterfall things outside of the massage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully
2: a... a little more engaging than that. But...
1: <laughs> Well, there's another backstory here, too, which is you two as a couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're now engaged. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, how did that... Ha- where did that happen?
2: Well, it happened out on the West Coast when we were on tour last fall, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but we started dating pretty soon after we started playing together. Um, we'd been rehearsing for a show, and yeah. I just kind of caught feelings for Kevin. <laughs> <Caught> <laughs> feelings. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah had to express that to her. And then, uh, yeah, we were, we played the show in Portland and we were uh, heading up to Seattle, but we took a detour through um, Cannon Beach on the Oregon coast mm-hmm. and uh, we went on a hike and I yeah, popped, popped the, the question, question, knelt down in the mud. <laughs>
1: So there's a kind of romance to. There's an alchemy in the relationship and in the music as sure. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Catherine, though, yeah. he's you know you're still working under TakanoBu. What what are you bringing? What do you feel like you're bringing to this combination?
3: Hmm. So much. No, I mean it's hard for me to answer, but um, I don't know. Just female vocals, which had been there only a little bit before, and I think. Um, yeah, since I am classically trained, I think I can bring um, some sophistication to my parts.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: So are you going to keep
1: calling this Takenobu or
2: I think so for now, yeah. I mean, Catherine's been a great addition to the sound. She has a you know beautiful, sweet voice and a really nice violin tone and great musical sensibility, too. It's a really nice complement to what I would, you know. I mean, we do a lot of improvising stuff mm-hmm. um, instrumentally. And Catherine is, you know, kind of a rare classically trained musician who's really comfortable yeah. with that kind of thing. I think
3: when we started out playing together too, I was just doing what you wanted me to do. Um,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know,
3: like you were telling me, okay, here are the parts. But um, as like
2: a base, you know, framework. To,
3: right, exactly. To like, you know, anyway. But I'm, you know, now I think we're working together as a team much yeah. more about how we want it to sound mm-hmm. live and. You know what direction we want it to go.
2: And my suspicion is that Catherine will be really good at songwriting when she gets more uh, comfortable doing that. <laughs> so I've been encouraging her to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: And lots of practice coming up with your tour with Kishibashi. I want to thank you both, Nick Ogawa and Catherine Cook, for joining us. Thank Thanks. you so Thanks much for having us. Together they are the Atlanta based Takanobu. And we said we'd leave you with another song. This one is called Nobody Said. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Most Americans say they know at least some of their neighbors, but admit they tend to interact less with those who don't belong to the same race, class, or political party. And that's according to the Pew Research Center. When Tania Del Valle and her husband Pablo move into the Fixer Upper next door to Frank and Virginia Butley's historic home, a series and saga of microaggressions ensues. These racial, generational, and economic tensions play out in Native Gardens, a play on stage this month at Lawrenceville's Aurora Theater. And two of the co- show stars join me now in the studio to tell us more about the production. Fedra Ramirez-Olivares is Tania Del Valle and in Native Gardens. Hello. Hi. And Carolyn Cook is Virginia Butley. She's been on On Second Thought before. That's what happens with those Atlanta theater regulars. <laughs>
0: Hello, Virginia.
1: Welcome back. So the Butleys are white, the Del Valles are Latinx, and the Butleys are older, nearing their end of their careers in engineering, and the federal government Del Valles are successful, but still in their early careers in academia, also expecting their first child. What else can you tell us about these characters? You want to go, Phaedra? <laughs> <laughs> sure.
5: <laughs> um, so uh, Tanya is um, from New Mexico. She um, had a sort of. She wasn't very well off growing up, um, and she, her whole family has lived there for generations. That's one of, uh, one of her big um, sort of uh, things to teach, I guess, her new neighbors is. Um, you know, what it's like to to be, to have Mexican heritage, but to um, have always been in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little bit about her background.
1: How about for Virginia and Frank?
0: Uh, well, here's what's wonderful about the, the writing. Karen Zacharias, who wrote this play, has done this magnificent, um, uh, I, I would say, like, Uh, (laughs) cross-stitch of characters where everybody's connected and everybody's different. So Mm -hmm. one of the ways that my character, Virginia Butley, who goes by Ginny, is very much like uh, Phaedra's character, Tanya is that um, she also grew up with very few things. She grew up in Buffalo, New York. She's um, she is from an immigrant family, whereas the person of Mexican heritage in the play is not. Mm-hmm. She's Her family has always lived in the same place. It's just that the place was first part of Mexico and then became part of America. So the individuals in the family never immigrated. It's the land that changed. And uh, in the case of my character Virginia, um, her family is Polish American, so her parents uh, immigrated, or her grandparents immigrated to the United States. So, but both of them come from similar economic backgrounds, so they have that mm-hmm. in common. Mm-hmm. Um, they have in common the fact of being female and being wives. Um, the differences are um, ethnic heritage. Um, uh, uh, age. Age is yeah. a huge it's difference a between difference, them. Yeah. and But educationally, they're very much alike also. My character is an engineer. She works at Lockheed Martin. She is very well respected in her field. Mm-hmm. And Phaedra's character is on the verge of earning her PhD in anthropology. In anthropology. Mm-hmm. So just fascinating connections and disconnections between these people, which is just so true to life.
1: Right, and some of the assumptions that they make about each other, uh, beginning quite early, even before they've met, Frank assumes that the Del Valle's prefer red over white wine Right, <laughs> as he's deciding what to give them as a housewarming gift. So what other kind of assumptions are they making about each other?
5: Oh, I think there's so many assumptions going on um, about um, what it means to be an affluent white person, um, you know, um, how... I guess, uh, who is racist, who is not, uh, what it means to be Republican, what it means to be dem- a Democrat, right? Like all of these polarizing things that we have in our society today and what we associate with that. And um, I think the play does a really good job of sort of uh, dispelling that and uh, subverting that. And Subverting like, is yeah. a
0: great word because mm-hmm. I, I have to say... Um, I, when I first started reading the play, it's really about gardens. It really is. Nice. Um, <laughs> the whole subject matter of the play are these... Um Backyards mm-hmm. that uh, are side by side and that have a really ugly chain link fence separating them. Really, and so so that's what? a bad fence, making it's for good neighbors ba- or bad, bad neighbors. Fa- that's right, bad <laughs> right. fences. Um, and so, it, it, and the whole plot is is driven on replacing that chain link fence with mm-hmm. a with a beautiful wooden fence. Um, so it becomes about. Borders. It becomes about fences. It becomes about property rights. It becomes about all of these things that resonate on a national level, but are very, very personal,
5: interpersonal, and just yeah, yeah, about, uh, keeping and achieving the American dream. Exactly.
1: And like, yeah. Exactly. And embodied he's... in the yards, which is so interesting. In fact, like your character Virginia or Ginny, rather. Ginny. Is, is she a straight... goes
0: by Ginny. <laughs>
1: A name that still rankles me, but nonetheless (laughs) is a straight shooter. She tells the Del Valle's that she's how happy she is that Frank and uh, they're finally have real homeowners next door. Yeah. What does real homeowners mean? Well,
0: real homeowners means that she doesn't like there being rental property in the neighborhood. Um, And that they had lovely neighbors who were older and passed away. And a a relative has been renting out the house next door to college students who leave beer cans in the yard and so on and so forth. And our set designers, uh, Mariah and Isabel Curly Clay, have done a magnificent job of leaving trash in that backyard. (laughs) And you can see why Virginia would be really, really happy to have people purchase a home, purchase the home and move in and start to fix it up. So... Um, She's thrilled to have people settle in. And there's another very exciting element, which is that Tanya Del Valle is pregnant. So (laughs) Virginia is seeing the possibility of being able to babysit and maybe her son hasn't married for reasons that become clear over the course of the play. And she's dying for grandchildren. You know, it's a really, really wonderful opportunity Um, When I first read the play, I started reading it, and I was like, oh, cute, you know, little domestic squabbles about gardens. Okay, different gardening philosophies. One has these beautiful, you know, hydrangeas and azaleas and so on, and the other is going to put in native plants. Okay, funny, funny, ha-ha. And then I'm turning another page and another page and another page, and the way this writer subverts the arguments and, mm-hmm. and gives them the kinds mm-hmm. of twists and jabs, it becomes laugh out loud hilarious, yes. hilarious. And the audience really rolls with us, but they're thinking at the same time. So it's, I, I, I got to say, it is a tour de force.
1: <laughs> so, so for Ginny, her husband, Frank, he, he loves his garden. He's part of his identity as, as a gardener. But Freda, your husband, Pablo, uh, he's hustling to make partner at his firm, gets a little carried away, and invites his <laughs> firm over for a garden party at your fixer-upper, which is not right. quite fixed up at that point. How does Tanya react? And what does that reveal?
5: Um, Tanya is very much against this idea <laughs> at first. Uh, you know there's there's a lot going on for them too. Um, Pablo is is going through uh, quite a bit of pressure at work um, to sort of fit in as uh, the only, Foreign Latinx uh, person, um, but Tanya as well as how ha- is you know she's studying for her, she's uh, getting ready to defend her dissertation, she's uh, like almost eight months pregnant, um, so it's unpacking, it's it's all these things, and um, it's kind of uh, I think for for Tanya she feels that Pablo is trying too hard, mm-hmm. right? That that um, that he doesn't need to prove who he is and that um if he just does a good job you know they'll be they'll accept him he's just a new guy um and it takes her a little bit longer to see the importance of of really having to prove yourself in the workplace when you have this immigrant background Mm -hmm. that she hasn't really had to go through
1: i wondered also you know because she comes from a humble place the idea of showing a home that's less than perfect you know, what these, like what the insides versus the outsides is there?
5: Sure. Um, I think she uh, has not necessarily ideas of, of what perfect is, but maybe um, she likes to show what her philosophies are and for that to be clear. Um, especially through her like native garden and all of that. Um, so yeah, there's there, there's definitely that level of of like, you know, I want to have a, a settled home and like something that represents who we are um, to to these outside, you know, um, I guess spectators.
1: That's Fedra Ramirez-Olivares, and Carolyn Cook is also with me. They're sharing the stage this month at Lawrenceville's Aurora Theater in the play Native Gardens, which is an exploration of the relationship between neighbors and the politics of ownership and race and class and how we see the natural and man-made world, which is something that you mentioned, Carolyn, that this is very much about, like, gardening philosophies on some level. <laughs> it is. And, and Tanya, Tanya, she grew up around gardens. Her grandparents owned a farm. She's planning a native garden garden in their backyard. So how does her vision of nature differ from Frank's, for example?
0: Well, um, my husband, Frank, who's played by Bart Hansard, a brilliant comic actor, well, a brilliant actor across the board. Uh, His garden is what you would call a traditional, (laughs) quote-unquote, garden (laughs) that you might see in the South. So it's a lot of the things that we plant in our yards here that um, may have been brought into our environment but aren't necessarily native to our environment. So um, things like English ivy, you know, you Mm -hmm. see those signs when you're going along the interstate, English ivy kills trees. And um, it is true that we've brought in a number of plants that kind of break down the natural ecosystem here. and what Tanya is trying to do is restore that. What Frank is trying to do is win the Potomac Horticultural Society's <laughs> Gardening Award. <laughs> and that means going with these very showy, beautiful uh, plants. Um, that uh, It is a remarkably beautiful garden. Um, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't support uh, biodiversity. And so that's an exciting sort of and hilarious um, challenge that each of these gardeners has for each other, (laughs) while at the same time, Frank and Tanya share the love of gardening. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ginny, who was the only female engineer in her division for 20 years, shares Pablo's ambition and need to prove herself. So that's another way where you discover that you have something in common with a neighbor that maybe you thought you had nothing in common
1: with. Well, and it's funny, too, because Tanya says, "Ask Virginia and Frank, didn't you hear the segment on NPR about native gardening? (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) Which which does exist. And they they, say,
1: of course we listen to NPR. We're old, not dead. (laughs) Well, but this is part of the funny thing that, you know, what becomes central to this is about reclaiming what is rightfully their property. And without giving too much away. You know, there's a point where Ginny says, they want to take our land, you know, kind of thing. But this illustrates the idea that New people, new Americans, or someone perceived as a new American is taking something away from those who are established. Mm -hmm. But this is interesting because it sets up not between, you know, the disempowered, anti-immigrant Americans saying, you know, they're taking our jobs, but the others. They're the NPR listeners, the middle class. So what did these dynamics bring? Uh, First of all, a a great deal of humor
0: (laughs) as you sit on, uh, you know, on the outside looking in and go, oh, I've met somebody like that. Oh, that hilarious person is me. Um, So, uh, but yeah, it creates... A self-questioning, I think, mm-hmm. uh, very much. It takes a little while for the characters to realize that they're maybe letting things fly out of hand, <laughs> um, and it, and the, the playwright does take us to a hilarious conclusion. But the yeah, it challenges. Um, you know, Jenny at, at some point says, "You can't, you can't do this. Why are you trying to do this party? Why are you trying to take our land? What are you trying to do?" And and. Uh, Phaedra's character, Tanya, says, you understand he has something to prove at the office. You know, this is Mm -hmm. really important. And and Jenny does understand. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, but at the same time, she wants to defend um, her set in her ways, uh, way of life. So, yeah, it becomes about sharing. Welcome to kindergarten.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's also a little bit about um, showing the complexities of what, Um, It is to be an immigrant and um, how we tend to separate these groups, uh, you know, on the basis of race. Um, And we sort of oversimplify that and are like, okay, I can recognize uh, who has ownership, who has right, who doesn't. Um, But I think through this, uh, I guess, allegory, we get to see, okay, this is much more complicated than we than we think, you know. Yeah. And
0: each individual in these groups that we're generalizing about is a person. Right. And we need to get to know them as people.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's harder to do when you're not sitting there watching them in a play. And I think that's part of, well, actually, maybe that is part of what's going on here. Listeners can go see Native Gardens at Lawrenceville's Aurora Theater through June 2nd. And, you know, Lawrenceville is in Gwinnett County, which is seen rapid transformation in terms of demographics in recent years. Uh, seems like there could be a lot of folks out there who don't look just like their neighbors. So what do you think, what do you hope that audiences will get when watching this production?
5: I, I mean, I hope that people will see themselves on stage and um, will recognize their flaws and um, will also maybe identify with the other side of like, oh, you know, that um, I've been there before, I felt that, I've. so what does that... Say about my position or, you know, my own privilege or about um, my lack of it, you know? Yeah,
0: and it goes both ways too. I feel like everybody can see their own flaws on stage, but also their own strengths Mm -hmm. because uh, there's beauty in each one of these characters. There's ways that each one of them is right. Um, And you know, if you walk in the door wanting to judge anybody in the in the play, you're gonna walk away having changed your mind a little bit. Everybody yeah. in the play has um, kindness and generosity in them. Uh, they have a point to make. Um, they just
1: need to consider life in I guess with eyes more wide open.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Just twenty seconds wondering if this play changed the way that you see your relationship with your neighbors either of you
5: um I think so I think um it really brought out just just the value of listening and and conversation you know being compassionate and empathetic and how that is probably the most powerful tool to to depolarize and uh, bring bring people together who may think have nothing in common
0: I would second that and say laughter laughter, laughter. It goes a long way in healing. All right,
1: details on the play Native Gardens at gpbnews.org. And on GBB, by the way, Governor Brian Kemp is scheduled to sign the so-called heartbeat bill at 10 o'clock this morning. We're streaming it live on the GBB Facebook page or Political Rewind Twitter feed. And of course, listen for coverage of the issue during Political Rewind at 2 this afternoon and during All Things Considered later on. Well, listen for the hard knock life of wrestlers. After the break, I'm Virginia Prescott. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Professional wrestling boomed when cable hit in the late 70s and early 80s. Shows like Georgia Championship Wrestling and Mid-South Wrestling planted dreams of glory in the heads and hearts of muscular Southern boys. Ted, The Million Dollar Man, DiBiase, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, and Billy Superstar Graham all had important matches in Georgia, and they are among dozens of stars who took hits outside of the ring. The documentary film, 350 Days, looks into the hard-knock lives of professional wrestlers in what is known as the golden age of wrestling.
4: 350 days a year as a wrestler on the road. Maybe it's a sickness.
6: 350 days a year. A lot of physical pain. A lot of loneliness. You have no home life whatsoever.
1: Piper and me riding down the road,
4: doing eight balls of cocaine. I'm sure it broke up marriages.
1: And that last voice you heard was former pro wrestler J.J. Dillon. He was the N.W.A. Macon heavyweight champion. He joins me now on the line from Delaware. J.J., hello. Uh, Good
4: morning, Virginia.
1: Good morning. And also with us, Darren Antola. He's creator and executive producer of 350 Days. He's joining me from NPR in New York. Hello there, Darren.
6: Good morning, Virginia. Thank you very much for having me on. Much well, appreciated.
1: Thanks for being here. J.J., we just heard a little bit from that documentary. More than a film to you, but your life. So what what comes to mind when you hear 350 days?
4: Well, it immediately reminds me of what makes the world of professional wrestling unique uh, as compared to, to anything else, whether it's basketball, baseball. Um, when you look at all, r- racing, they all have they're all seasonal they have a season and then they have a downtime Mm. professional wrestling is really uh, 365 days out of the year which which makes it quite unique and it was uh, a big part of my life uh, for well over half a century
1: well it doesn't leave a lot of time for family and friends Darren you talked to nearly 80 wrestlers from the time about half of those made it into the movie uh, one says wrestling was one thing living the life was another are there any stories about life on the road that stand out for you
6: oh there's there's just so many of them uh, I don't even know where to begin but I will say uh, Greg Valentine had some really great stories and J.J. And J. Dillon had some really really great stuff and he says it it captured our lives like no other documentary so that really meant a lot to me mm. but to answer your question uh, superstar Billy Graham's story was pretty interesting now. Uh, How this girl saved his life and his liver went bad and it was just brings tears to your eyes.
1: Yeah, uh, he was he got hepatitis C, maybe from being in the ring with this part of the theatrics was slitting their foreheads with blood. So blood would be running down, which is part of the whole story here about the theatrical and, and the performance aspect of this. And of course, not everybody in the biz becomes the rock. We hear in the film that some wrestlers got paid only $30 a day, healthcare benefits non-existent. Here's million dollar man, Ted DiBiase.
5: I think about driving to Greenwood and Greenville, Mississippi and wrestling in front of a hundred people, in front of a hundred people and then getting in a car and driving 300 miles. and, uh, And some of those nights not having enough money to even eat at McDonald's, we would go and buy a loaf of bread and, you know, bologna. We call them bologna blowouts. We'd get in some flea bag hotel and, you know, with two beds and we'd take the mattresses off the bed and uh, four guys and flip a coin to see who had to sleep on the hard box spring or who got the mattress.
1: That's some tough, tough going there. J.J., for you, 350 days on the road, living like that, driving from match to match, what did that mean for a family life or any kind of leisure time at all for you?
4: Well, you had to have a special family that understood that this was uh, your passion and that it involved uh, you making sacrifices, but also involved your family making sacrifices in terms of time away from home and um, you know, you're hearing things um, like with just listening to Ted that, you know, it. What, people think of wrestling as turning on a television and seeing you on TV and right away making the assumption that, oh, you're on TV, that means that you're a huge star and that you're an extremely wealthy man, um, which was not true. And some people uh, that were in the business took that perception of stardom and the fact that they drove big cars and what have you and lived in big homes and that there were people who spent every dollar that they ever earned trying to live up to that uh image and when it was all over ended up with nothing so it, the, the business could be could be very cruel and unforgiving but at the same time extremely rewarding it mm-hmm. just uh, it's, it's like for me as a 16 year old kid from new jersey i discovered professional wrestling and dreamed that maybe someday because i used to go to madison square garden and i'd see An argentina rock and, and dr jerry graham and eddie graham and and all and haystacks calhoun chief big heart all these bigger than life uh characters and someday dreamed that maybe i could step into the ring of madison square garden which was a uh, Reality that that came true for me uh, years later. Um, that was the rewarding part of it. And a lot of guys um, spend every dime that they make trying to live up to what they per- are perceived to be the image of, of. Well, you're you're famous and you're rich. And the lucky ones um, make enough money to have a comfortable lifestyle and are able to save save money, but the business can be very rewarding and it can be also be very cruel at times. Yeah.
1: yeah, I want to say it's a hard life, but this is not by any means a grim film. Uh, some of the stories, I mean, we hear The Million Dollar Man, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, The Hammer, The Butcher, The Mask, The Wrestling Rabbi. <laughs> I mean, this is a film about the people behind these played-up personalities and really the shtick. Darren, what did those personas bring to professional wrestling?
6: Well, wrestling will never be the same in my opinion as it was in the 70s and 80s it just seemed like everybody was truly special and these guys are real athletes today don't get me wrong but everybody i talk to like whenever i mention the movie they say oh that's when wrestling was wrestling i mean i can't even keep track how many times i hear that and all these guys were were really truly special in their own way they had their own characters like uh, greg valentine real serious wrestler and you have you know different people like wendy who's a great wrestler as well and Paul Orndorff, like, they they all have something special. It's just hard to say which one of them is—every one of them brings something to the table in 350 days. I mean, we we have never before seen photographs from around the world. Um, You know, it's just tremendous.
1: Well, and it's—there's a lot of joy and a lot of payoff. And, J.J., you say in the film that celebrity put a lot of temptations in front of you— and for some of the people in the film, that was drugs, steroids for bodybuilding, cocaine and amphetamines and alcohol, just to keep going. And and women, uh, uh, especially in the South, interestingly enough, uh, one of the wrestlers says, they were readily available. Do you think it was difficult for you to—well, you said in the film, you know, you were married 35 years, not to the same person—
4: <laughs> That's the sum total of three failed marriages, <laughs> of, of which I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not bragging about. But you know, uh, my first marriage only lasted four years because I was just getting out of college and and uh, brash, immature, and and not ready for the experience. The only positive thing was I I had a daughter from that marriage that uh, uh, that, that I love and care very much about. And, My second marriage, I think, was uh, 17 years, and and we had no children. She had children by the her previous marriage, which I helped raise. And then the third marriage was like uh, was 14 years, and again, I had children. I had twins when I was 50, and another girl uh, uh, came along three years later. So, uh, I mean, it's my life is uh, just. You know, unique, I guess, for me. But the story is very similar to other people that fell in love with professional wrestling and had it be their chosen career. And for me, I was fortunate to always make a a decent living. um, Got a chance to go places and travel the world where I would not have otherwise. Um, And so I kind of look at the big picture of. Uh, what, we you know was it a hard life? yes, when you're working 50 50 weeks a year uh, away from home, you know where you're wrestling seven days a week um, you know your family has to um, make sacrifices and you make sacrifices of not being home, and you're missing birthdays, missing anniversaries. Um, but the wrestling business is very demanding and yet, You know, I look back, I'm I'm 77 years old now, and I spent uh, well over half a century full time in this business. And I have to say in all honesty that uh, I don't regret a moment of it. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. change anything because, like I say, all the places in the world that I got to go, all the people that I met along the way, and just the camaraderie of other people that also chose the same profession, Uh, You know, we're a brotherhood that uh, is very tight as well.
1: J.J. Dillon there, he's a former pro wrestler and one of those from the documentary film 350 Days, and that's how many days a year wrestlers often spend on the road. Darren Antola is also with us. He's the creator of the film and the executive producer. So watching the footages of of these matches, right, Uh, the theatrics, you know, pounding on the canvas, um, uh, fighting with the refs, you know, executives in suits jumping into the ring and being thrown over the ropes— how much of that is real? Darren, you want to pick that up?
6: Well, you can't fake gravity, I can tell you that. And you can't, <laughs> right you can't that, wrestle that, 350 days a year and, and not get hurt. It's impossible.
1: But we have learned that the finishes were predetermined. There was a really strict code of keeping these tricks secret. we got the baby face who's going to win and then the other guy. But as you said, what happened in the ring was no joke, as we hear in the film. It's not a desk
0: job. It's a very physical job. Is
5: that wrestling all fake? I go well. It is orchestrated, but at the same time, it's man the
1: getting slammed and thrown through tables and every, getting hit with steel chairs. We really do do that, so the the injuries are real. So
4: it yeah, I, I I I agree because I lived it and the injuries are real. The blood is real, um, and you know if you you have to love this business to do it because you often sacrifice. Your, your body, and you're in the ring with someone who also, like you for the most part, has a family to feed, so we're going to go at it, you know, I, I look at like two professional football players that are on the line, and when that, that ball is snapped, you know, these 250, 300 pounders, you know, just crash into each other with all their might, and that's really what professional wrestling is about, you go out there and you you give, you give it all, and you hope at the end of the day that you uh, you go home and you haven't got any broken bones or anything that's going to prohibit you from coming back and doing it the next day so that you can feed your family.
1: Well, you know, so we have broken noses, blown out knees, fused vertebrae, people covered in blood in photos. As I mentioned, they would cut themselves with a razor blade across the forehead so blood would just be pouring down all over. Part of the theater. Now that was just in the ring, but outside of the ring, fans were apparently uh, pretty brutal. Would often want to get into a fight. Were sort of gunning to take on the big wrestler. In fact, J.J., you were shot at, weren't you? Once in the in, yeah, in I was, Canada,
4: I, I went through the whole gamut. I was shot at, and and if you were, if it's like you can't get mad at the fans. Sometimes your first instinct is if you had a. A hot match, and some fans came into the ring, and and the police had to come. And a lot of times, you get a police escort out, and you're 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 angry at the moment for because the fans, what I call, stepped over a line by coming into your your uh, your realm in the ring, but you can't really be mad because this is what you. If you're good at what you do, um, the fan sitting there looks at something. It's a like you say a performance art, but uh, when it's uh, performed at its highest level, it looks so real that it becomes real,
2: yeah.
3: and
4: that's what uh, where fans you know just they lose their somebody if someone said to them well, I'm buying a ticket to go to to watch the matches because I really enjoy it, and somebody said well you know you're going to get mad and you're going you're going to get so angry that you're just you're going to do something that. You wouldn't think that you'd be capable of doing, which is getting out of your seat, climbing in the ring, and trying to interfere in something. Uh, and most people would say, "Oh no, 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 no! I, I never, never take it that serious." And yet, it happened, happened on a regular basis. And when you're in the ring, uh, and if a group of people decide to come in the ring and interfere, you're very, very vulnerable. So, uh, getting just forgetting the, the the fans coming in the ring, just it's a it's a It's a physical encounter between two individuals, and uh, I don't care how much training you've had, uh, but when you have two guys that are between 250, 300 pounds and some much heavier than that, uh, Andre the Giant was uh, well over 500 pounds, which, again, was the exception, but he was just a big, powerful man. And it just, as I look back, I am so fortunate that, I, like I say, I had 3,200 professional matches over a 20-year period of time. But I also got a chance to travel the world, go places that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and, you know, Darren, I Darren get, get forgive to me see that. Madison Square Garden, dream that someday I, I would hopefully be there and, and got to live that dream, too. Go to Japan, go to Australia, where I lived for a year and wrestled. So I I have nothing but, but but good memories.
1: JJ, and thank you for that. Um, sorry to interrupt, but we just have a minute left. And I wanted to ask Darren I mean, the, the 70s and 80s, this was a pretty gritty era for wrestling. Uh, now people get drug tested regularly. Um, are there more protections for wrestlers against these kind of injuries and fans?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, there's just, as, as, the sport, as the sport evolved, I mean, testing came. Vince McMahon made a lot of test of it you know things there's no more razor blade jobs like that anymore because of the hepatitis but yeah absolutely it's changed for me it'll never be like it was and uh, just don't miss out you can watch it now on itunes amazon and on-demand cable please don't miss 350 days this is going to really be something special to you
1: yeah and darren
4: i was i was uh, privileged that you uh, included me in that documentary and it really i would encourage anyone who's even a uh, not even sure that they're a wrestling fan. You know, watch it. It's uh, it. It rolls into the lives of um, of top people in the industry, and you hear their personal stories. And I think it's a it's a wonderful documentary. Yeah, it's a real human story thank there, you and you I so want much, to thank JJ you both for being involved. Thank you.
1: Thank you for being here, JJ Dillon, Darren. And- and creator behind the new documentary 350 days again the film is streaming now on itunes amazon and on demand and you can check out the trailer at our website gpbnews.org don't forget today uh, political rewind is going to be uh, wrapping up the heartbeat bill the bill scheduled to be signed today at 10 o'clock by the governor we will we'll of course be covering it on gpb and all things considered and again political rewind